Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you especially this morning for <clears throat> your command to us through your Son that we ask you to forgive our sins. And we pray that we will obey his command. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a, well, okay, so today we're going through the Lord's Prayer and we come to the petition And the petition that we have today is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I'm going to start out by saying that we're going to break this into two weeks. But really, it's one petition. The petition is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so, by saying, as we forgive our debtors, we are joining together our request of God, our confession to God of our need for his forgiveness and our generosity, and our kindness, and our humanity, all right, towards uh, those who uh, have debts towards us, or that we have debts towards. Now, listen, um, we've gone through the first few sections of the prayer And let's remember the relationship of this petition to the rest of the prayer. First of all, um, we have the preface, Our Father who art in heaven. It's a declaration of who God is. Then we come to these six petitions, and we've already dealt with the first petition, Holy is your name, or Holy be your name. And then the second one, which is Your kingdom come. And so as God's name is um, sanctified, set apart, as God's name is treated as holy, his kingdom comes in. You can't separate the name of God from the kingdom of God. All right? So, hallowed be your name, holy be your name, your kingdom come, thy kingdom come. And then thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean to bring in the kingdom of God but for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Then we get to this next uh, petition, which is give us this day our daily bread. Now, um, I'm sorry, that was last week with Stephen. And um, Stephen made the point that we should not blush to ask God for our physical needs. But we also should not rem- forget that this is one petition out of all the petitions, which is actually physical. And really, we need the forgiveness of God more than we need to eat. All right? And so we come now to this fifth petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, um, every time that you pray this prayer anywhere, uh, unless it's in your home church and you know its habits, uh, as you get through the prayer, you know that you sit there and you think, oh no, uh, I think I'm just going to drop out and see what they all say. Because we never know whether people are going to say debts and debts or trespasses and those who trespass against us. The church I served prior to this was not 
a church that prayed the Lord's Prayer, and so it had been some time before uh, I decided one Sunday that I was going to lead us in the Lord's Prayer. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the prayer, it occurred to me, I had no idea what the habits of the church were as far as uh, whether they said trespasses or debts. And so I thought, well, I'll just drop out. And so as it came to that point in the prayer, I was, you know, I sort of swallowed my words like, like Ben Carell swallows his words. You know, we were just talking about that. You know how Ben's talking to you? And that's what I did. And I was waiting to hear whether they'd say debts or trespasses. It was a cacophony. It was about half the congregation meandering off into, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then the other people were saying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then they have to sort of hang out and suck their thumb while they're waiting for the other people to catch up with them. You know, it takes a lot longer to say, forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. So where does this confusion come from? Well, it comes from the fact that uh, it doesn't, it's not uniform in Scripture itself. Um, <clears throat> for instance, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, Luke says, forgive us our sins. All right? In the Book of Common Prayer, which really has more to do with how we worship, how we have wedding ceremonies, how we have funerals, and any other book in the English language. And in fact, the Book of Common Prayer is um, itself the product of very old English uh, liturgical uh, formula, and, uh, the old Sarum rite. Um, and so really the words in the Book of Common Prayer often are a thousand years old, and they don't belong to the Anglicans, they don't belong to the Roman Catholics, they are the church of the English-speaking world. And so we should not be uh, rejecting of them, right? Um, anyhow, in the Book of Common Prayer, it does say trespasses. And so that's the reason that a lot of us uh, have inherited uh, the word trespass against us and trespasses. Um, but as I said, Luke says, forgive our sins, and Matthew says, debts and debtors. It doesn't matter which we say, except for having some degree of uh, uniformity in worship, um, because trespass does mean false step. And the word debt is the word that would have normally been used in Aramaic, which is likely the language that Jesus taught in. The word debt in Aramaic is the word for sin. And so it doesn't really matter which word we use. They do mean the same thing. Now, sin here is called a debt. And I want us to think for a second about how serious the debt of sin is. It's very interesting that <laughs> you know, we oh my goodness. 
We are so good at keeping track of other people's debts to us. And, excuse me a second. You know, could I have a glass of water, please? Don't worry, this isn't coronavirus. It's my normal cough as I preach. Still here. Okay, here I am. Um, thank you, Jody. In order for this sermon to continue, it's imperative that you stop and have a little self-awareness, okay? I want you to think about how good you are at keeping track of other people who've done you wrong, okay? We're, we're really good at that. <clears throat> You know, we can, we can remember. My wife, phew, she can remember precisely the things that I did that ruined, I think, every single hour on our family vacations, can't you? <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, I have these sort of hazy cloudy, sweetie, sickly sweetie ideas about what we did that day on our vacation. And she remembers that I wouldn't let the children, I wouldn't stop so the kids could go to the bathroom. <laughs> you know. <laughs> We're very good, all of us, including me. I'm very good at uh, keeping track of other people's failures, particularly those failures that hurt me, okay? Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, because when we keep track of other people's debts to us, them, he done me wrong, you know, when we do this, it is so obvious to everyone that we have absolutely no self-awareness. Do you understand what I'm saying? The only way you keep track of other people's debts to you. Now, it is true that there are times where, say, for instance, a teenage boy has a debt of respect to his father, that his father will immediately come down on the teenage boy in any one of a number of methods because the father realizes that the order of the home depends and that the character of his son depends upon him coming down. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about when we are going through life and as leaders realize that order requires us to defend the office we hold, the authority we hold, the honor we hold, because all offices come from God. And sometimes we defend those offices for the sake of the well-being of the whole, the country, the state, the city, the church, <clears throat> the home. Sometimes we defend that office for the sake of the individual and his growth in godliness and character, or simply his growth in the ability to do what he's told, because we realize how quickly he's going to have a boss and a job, and we want him to be able to keep his job, right? 
That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about where we are just so full of ourselves that we keep track of other people's wrongs. And what's evident to people is that we have no idea who we are. You all with me? You know, it's like, dude, I can remember sitting and talking with a man once that I was very close to. And that man had once, uh, I got to think of how to circumnavigate this. Uh, that man was once very public in rejecting uh, the practice of a large group of people on the basis of a principle that he held firmly. And then a few years later, I was sitting talking to him, and he was in a position of need at this time, and he, he allowed us how he thought he might go into another large group of people that violated the very principle that had caused him to reject another group of people. Do you understand? And you're sitting there with people, and you know how judgmental they've been and how hard-nosed they've been. And then all of a sudden, when it suits their purposes, all their principles vanish, and you're sitting there, and you're going, <laughs> yikes. Why are you going yikes? Well, you're going yikes because you realize you're with someone who has absolutely no self-awareness. Well, what is self-awareness? But it's another phrase for self-critical capacity. And what is self-critical capacity? Well, self-critical capacity is another phrase for self-awareness. <laughs> you know? In other words, they don't know their sin. Now, I'm going to read you a story that Jesus told to emphasize this. Peter, that lovely man Peter, came up to him, and Peter had been keeping track, hadn't he? Huh? Had Peter been keeping track? He'd been keeping track. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? <laughs> you know, up to seven times. Peter, in his great magnanimity, was prepared to go up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Well, uh, <laughs> at that point, Peter was forlorn and comfortless and depressed because he'd been prepared to think that maybe he should go to seven times and essentially he was been told by Jesus, there is no end to your forgiveness. None. Well, Jesus knew this was a hard teaching, and so he helped it along by telling a story. Now, listen very carefully to this story, and don't think about your wife, and don't think about your husband, and don't think about your parents, and don't think about me, and don't think about anybody but yourself, and listen to this story. For this reason, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. This would be the equivalent of um, about 12 tons of gold. Okay, tons of gold. So he goes, he, he deals with this servant who owes him 12 tons of gold. And the servant was brought to him, but since he did not have the means to repay, and of course, 
the master's God, and the payment is impossible for our sins. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, the slave, along with his wife and children and all that he had. You know, our thing about individualism is just completely bogus. Notice the story Jesus tells when the father of the household gets sold into slavery. Everybody in the household gets sold into slavery. Don't think that anybody lacks solidarity with their federal head, okay? Anyhow, so the slave did what came naturally to him. He fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Well, no, he wouldn't repay everything because he he couldn't, you know. You're going to come up with 12 tons of gold, you know, even if you're really good at counting cards in blackjack in Las Vegas, you know, you're not going to come up with 12 things of gold. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That's it. Forgiven. But, now here comes the crunch of the story, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, And he seized him and began to choke him. So, uh, 12 tons of gold versus the wages of a common laborer for 100 days. That's what a denarius is. It's basically a day's wages. So what comparison does 12 tons have to, uh, say, a third of the year's wages? Okay. So he went out, found somebody who owed him 100 denarii. He seized him and he began to choke him. Choke him! Saying, pay back what you owe! He's choking him. Remember I said I sat at the table with this man and I just like, (laughs) yikes, yikes, yikes. Can you imagine how Peter is feeling right now? choke him, you know. Peter knows he's the guy choking the dude. He's the point of the story, right? Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened and then summoning him, His Lord said to him, now who's the Lord? It's God. It's God. You won't forgive? Okay. And so God, so his master came to him, summoned him. You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Okay, now, you know, did we all hear this? And so then the question becomes, what do you think of a Christian who is not able to forgive other people and keeps track? Huh? 
What do you think of such a person? The thing that's grieved me most in watching the conservative reform church in the last 10 years has been the absence of any self-critical capacity on the part of us as leaders. It is incomprehensible to me that anybody who talks on and on about grace could know any grace at all who does not grow in their ability to confess their sin. You understand this? If you do not see in your life a growing capacity to forgive others and not notice their sins against you, it's because you have not grown in your capacity to see your own sin. That's why. Notice that Jesus is not saying these debts don't exist. It's impossible to live in this world without the accrual of debts that are, that are mind-boggling. You know, you look at the relations between nations. You look at the Hatfields and the McCoys. You know, you just look at your neighbors. You know why Mike Bowles lives out in the middle of the country? He lives out there so he doesn't have to have a neighbor that hates him and he hates his neighbor, you know? But then he goes and shoots the cow anyhow, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> Mike's my friend. I, I moved out to the country after living cheek by jowl, smashed up against our neighbors, I mean, in Spicewood, you know. And uh, the fact is, in Spicewood, we had good relations with our neighbors. But now that we live out in the country and have lots of room, Oh, my goodness. It's just very hard uh, to keep good relationships. And, and that doesn't begin to deal with small groups, you know. The complaints I've heard about people not bringing enough food and people taking the home for granted. You know, my irritation when I come in our kitchen and, and there's still marks on the, on, on the countertop, you know. Can't you clean the countertop? You know, I'm a neat freak. (laughs) Listen, people joke about uh, the caps on toothpaste tubes for a reason. And the reason is we will find occasion to be offended and to create a debt out of the the smallest. Do you know that I lived with my wife for 40-some years before I found out that... I'm, I'm a neat freak, and so what I do is when I get done using the sink and the counter around, I take my hand, put it under the water, and I wash the inside of the sink, and then the little indented part around the inside of the sink, and then the counter around the sink, you know? I think that this is a helpful thing to do. And I think we never have to wash it because I've washed it every morning, right? Isn't that helpful? <clears throat> And I don't know, but I was complaining to Mary Lee about something she did at our sink. I don't remember what it was. But I think I was, I don't know, do you remember? Oh, I think I do remember what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Mary Lee is not a complainer, but at that moment she thought, all right, if we're going to keep accounts, I'm going to tell you what I don't like about you. 
And she told me that she's irritated by me always having the counter and sink wet when I leave. And I'm thinking, my goodness, here I thought I was sort of, you know, the best husband you could have. Cleaning, every day cleaning. And then I find out that Mary Lee thinks I'm a pig because it's wet. She probably thought I was sneezing and, and spraying everything, you know, when I got done. So now every single morning, we went through 40 years without knowing this, but now I have this burden of knowledge of debts. And so now I realize when I get done cleaning the sink, because I'll, I'll be, I'm not going to stop cleaning that sink. All right. And so now there's this little hand towel. It used to be pristine. Or there's my bath towel. And I don't want the hand towel to be wet in case she goes to use it because then she's going to think it's my, you know, spray or something that's wet and she's not going to know. I want the hand towel clean for her if she uses it. I don't know if she does. 40 years, I don't know. But I want, I don't mind my towel being wet, so I take my towel and I try to clean the sink. I don't clean the inside of the, the, the sink. But the counter and the, you know, that, now listen, why am I talking about this? Because everybody can laugh about it. You know, this is the stuff that marriages are made of. And the reason I'm talking about this is because adultery is a very hard sin to forgive. And I'm not just talking about physical adultery. I'm talking about adultery of the eyes and the mind. Selfishness is a very hard sin to forgive. There are many things that we accrue debts in our lives to other people. And we keep track ourselves, and Peter's keeping track, and Peter asks Jesus how many times he has to forgive someone. I remember when we first got married, and I was just saying this to the mother of a teenage boy yesterday in our church, that this boy has a temper. And <clears throat> when I first was married, I, I still have a temper. But my temper is nothing compared to what it was when we first got married. And I would get angry at Mary Lee. <clears throat> and by God's kindness, one, one thing that... It's helpful with me is that I do quick, quickly see my sin and usually apologize. But then after you've married the woman you love and you apologize for your anger against her 300,000 times, you know, there, there begins to be a question of sincerity, you know? You know, it's like, you know, can he really be sorry if he's saying I'm sorry, but I know he's going to do it again. Do you know what I began to say to Mary Lee because I despaired myself? I said to her, lover, <clears throat> the Bible says in the beginning of Philippians that he that began a good work in us will bring it to completion. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. I said, I cannot promise to you that I will not have to ask you to forgive me again for getting angry, but I will promise you that over time, God will continue and complete the work in me. You know, I think the last time I preached a sermon on forgiveness, and 
God's forgiving us our sins and the connection between that and us forgiving other people was uh, we had somebody in our church who had been in it for many, many years. And uh, that person is no longer in our church. And every single time I would talk about bitterness and forgiveness, that person's face was hard as nails. And it just grieved me. But, oh, that person, their whole life, they've held precious their hostility against a certain individual. And it's just obvious in their face when you preach to them. And they're no longer in the church. Listen, Jesus says to us that we are to pray, forgive us our debts. And that as we pray and make that request, we're to say, as we forgive. In other words, we're to say, plead with God to forgive us our sins in proportion, in connection with how we forgive others. Now listen, if you want to forgive others, do you know what you need to do? Is you need to pray the prayer, the petition, forgive us our debts. Or particularize it, specify it, personalize it, and say, Father, forgive me my sin. Then don't just make it a sort of catch-all, categorically, ollie-ollie in free. Say, Father, forgive me for getting angry at Mary Lee. Father, forgive me for being thoughtless with how I handle the, the cap on the toothpaste. And you say, oh, for heaven's sakes, there are more important things to pray about than that. And my response is, if that matters to your wife or your husband then it's a sin. It is a debt. Because we're supposed to live in such a way as to bless everybody around us. And you're saying, well, are you, are you telling me that I have to start, you know, living by the finicky rules of my wife? No, I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you to maximize the potential for your request of God to forgive you. I'm telling you to learn the totality of the debt that you owe God. Okay? And I guarantee you that if you study carefully your sins against God, you're going to stop keeping track of other people's sins against you. The clearest thing in pastoral care, which, uh, which uh, those of us who are pastors see, is that people who are offended by other people are always proud and ungrateful people. And being proud and ungrateful, they choke them, and they say, you pay me my debt. But the people who are humble and grateful don't even notice when others do it wrong. And others do it wrong. I was, uh, last week I was visiting a man in our church, and I think it's safe to say both of us had had done each other wrong. <laughs> you know, I know I had done him wrong. <clears throat> and I said to him, you know, um, the only way the church works is through love. And so as we love Jesus because he bore our sins, as we love God who sent for love, who sent his son to bear our sins, if we love the Holy Spirit 
that 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 tenderizes us. <laughs> okay, tenderizes us. You ever tenderized a, a piece of meat? It's a lot easier than tenderizing you. All you need for a piece of meat is a hammer with nails in, in, in the head of the hammer and some strong chemicals and some time. But even that won't tenderize some of us. Well, the love of God who sent his son to bear our sins, the love of the son who bore our sins, the love of the Holy Spirit who tenderizes us. What a difficult work the Holy Spirit has. Maybe that's why the Bible says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we consider our offenses against the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we count them, Instead of counting our blessings, naming them one by one, let's count our sins and name them one by one. All of a sudden, our love for God is going to explode, and as our love and gratitude for God explodes, it is without possibility, it is impossible that our love and gratitude for the church will not also explode. And when love explodes, love covers a multitude of sins. And you just don't remember them. In 1 John 1, 8 and 9 that Pastor Max read earlier, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And, you know, I'm very aware of our uh, devious tactics in um, <laughs> you know, in atomizing life, segmenting life, dividing up life like the dispensationalists, you know, well, that was that, and this is this, right? And so we hear this thing, and, and we hear it say, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving, the truth is not in us. And we say, well, but I know I had sin here. But this is your sin here. Well, that's not the way the economy of God works. Uh, we cannot live in the moment refusing to live in our lives, in our decades, in our years, in our months, in our days, and in our hours. And so the mark of somebody who has no love for God and no love for his church and no gratitude is a person who's always compartmentalizing and, and moving to the left their sin, but putting at the center other people's sin against them. And you know, the interesting thing is, um, you remember that Jesus said, that uh, he had longed to gather his people as a hen gathers her chicks. You remember that? You know how a hen gathers her chicks. Mother hen. But then you remember what Jesus said. He said, but you would not. You would not. God has tender with us like a hen with her chicks trying to gather us Jesus says but we would not Jesus goes on and he he describes 
all the efforts God has done as a hen would gather her chicks. And those efforts are the names of what? Well, they're the names of prophets, of pastors. So it's the name of Micah and Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea and Moses and Paul and John the Baptist and Jesus. I was thinking as I prepared to preach this about the Apostle Paul. And, you know, it's so amazing to look at the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter in the New Testament. Imagine the drama when the Apostle Paul faces down Peter in front of everyone, (laughs) you know. We just take that in stride. We don't meditate on it. But how many men in this church, if they had had the Apostle Paul, that that upstart, that Johnny-come-lately among the apostles, (laughs) you know, face down Peter, you know, the first pope. That's a joke. (laughs) Um, How many men of this church do you think would ever have come back? Did you ever think about that? An awful lot of people, if that had happened to them, that would have been the end of that church for that man. And yet, Peter even, how does that go? Do you remember how that goes? uh, Our brother Paul, who has written, you know, yeah, some things that are very difficult to understand. Well, even the way he has, and that's not really a criticism, even that is an evidence, I think, of his affection for Peter. Certainly not bitterness. Listen. It is true we hate to be called to account for our debts, and that's why we need to realize that God is trying to call us to himself. And he sent out prophet and prophet and prophet. And what do we do? We kill them. We hate them. We put them in a well, in a hole, in the mud. We spit on them. We scorn them. And, of course, that never happens without us claiming that we have hurts and that the prophet hurt us. I put up a post a couple of days ago about how if Jeremiah had been around today, everybody would have said that he got his coronavirus statistics wrong, and he had the wrong model, and he had this and that and the other thing. And, of course, everybody said, well, Jeremiah, it's always what everybody says. Whenever you use anything in Scripture as an example, people say, well, he had the inspiration of God. You know, and what their meaning is, no pastor today can ever call people to repent, can ever name sins, can ever preach helpfully, because he's not inspired. And, and, and it's just so stupid. Can you imagine the people at the time of Jeremiah saying, well, you know, he's inspired when he says this, because it's going to be written in the Bible? <laughs> you know? Come on. Of course he was inspired. But your pastors generally are hated by you when they're inspired. And you say, are you saying that your rebukes have the weight of Scripture? And I'm saying, no, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that God helps us in our work, and so the Holy Spirit leads us to do certain things. Are you saying that when you do certain things, it's infallible? No, no, no. I'm simply saying that we hate those who point out our sin to us. Sometimes our sin is so bad that we 
excruciatingly discipline ourselves to submit to the discipline in the moment and cry and, oh boy, we're just so sorry for our sins and we mourn and we grieve and we work them through, right? Are you with me? And then, a little while later, guess what? What's it called? Slam the chipmunk or whack-a-mole. And all of a sudden, whack-a-mole, the mole pops up again, <laughs> you know? And you think, where is that person that I just was crying with? Well, the old man's back. Turns out all that grief over sin doesn't seem to be in evidence now. And that's why Mary Lee and I look at people who confess serious sin in the church and we say, well, in a year they'll be gone. We don't really say it just like that. What we're really saying is, I hope this is one of those miracles where 10 years later they'll, they're still here and you can see their improvement in humility. Right? Listen, if you want to live in love with the people in your marriage, in your home, in your family. Listen when your pastors speak to you. Listen when the older women speak to you. Listen when the elders speak to you. Because the rebukes and exhortations of your pastors and elders and deacons and of the older women in the church are the grease that allow you to live in love with your children and with your husband and wife. Now, it is true that a fool can gather his family around him and take offense at God and can resist God's servants when they call him to be humble. But everybody knows that he's just cultivating his own image, using the things that are easiest to cultivate your own image with, which is your family. You know, what, what, are, what is your wife and what are your children going to do except worship you the way you demand that you be worshiped? And so nobody takes real seriously uh, a family standing around the father yelling at the pastor, <laughs> you know, right? At the elder, at the deacon. You know, everybody realizes that if an outsider comes into your small group and begins to punch your small group hostess, probably the small group is going to stand up for the hostess, you know? If we go through scripture again and again, we can find the excuses that we use to not confess our sin to God. Remember Adam saying, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. You remember Aaron? Moses finds the golden calf. He confronts Aaron and Aaron says, don't let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself. You know how awful these people are, that they're prone to evil, these lousy people. You know what kind of people we're leading, right? For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. 
And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And of course, what I get a kick out of with that is not only does he say the people are nasty and the people made him do it, the devil made him, the people made him do it. But then he says that he didn't even have agency in putting the gold together, but a calf just popped. Is that the way that we're to confess our sins to God? And then you've got Saul. And you have that confrontation. I, I think it, it, it is, I think if I were to nominate passages of Scripture that are most tragic, most pathetically tragic in Scripture, it would be 1 Samuel 15, where Samuel confronts Saul with his disobedience to God. And, you know, Samuel says, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoided to discretion, to sacrifice the Lord your God at Gilgal. You know, I mean, and Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Yikes. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as a sin of divination. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And at that point, if you remember, you will think that at that point, Saul actually confesses his sin. But listen to what he actually says. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, good start. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord, good second step, and your words, good third step, the servant of God. But then he says, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. You don't want to end your confession of sin giving an excuse. This is what God says in Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1 tells us in verses 7 and 8. And when he forgives sins, he forgets them. It says in Hebrews 8:12, "I will remember their sins no more." And if we have any question how serious the sins are that God forgives, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that the forgiven sinners in the church in Corinth were fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and effeminate and homosexuals and thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. Now listen. Listen. 
If you're going to go to God and ask him to forgive your sins, you must do it by faith. In other words, you have to have faith that God is a sin-forgiving God. And he is a sin-forgiving God. And we find the proclamation, the preaching of the forgiveness of sins to be the center of the gospel. If we have not cultivated our ability to confess our sins to God and to grow in sanctification because of our confession of sin to God, if instead we run a moral abacus, or abacus, however you pronounce it, you know, sliding, you know, these little beads, and and man, you know who those people are. Because the minute you offend any smallest part of their sense of what is right, they will let you know. It's nothing to do with God. Because our sin is tons and tons and tons of gold. And so if you have lived your life in such a way that you keep track and that everybody knows they better not cross you, and you are not known for asking other people to forgive you, then I would plead with you, turn, change, repent. Be very, very open to those who come to you about sin. Listen carefully and ask their forgiveness. You know, I'm not preaching this sermon, and and we're not commanded by Jesus to ask God to forgive as we forgive so that we can go to other people and accuse them, <laughs> you know. You know, you go to somebody else and you say, you know, you don't forgive. And I forgive you for not forgiving. I remember one time when we were about to have the Lord's Supper and I said, you know, let's take a few minutes for people to go around and be able to talk to other people that, and, and let's have some music and let's have a bunch of noise so we're not aware of who's talking to whom, you know. Afterwards, my wife came up to me and she said, what do you do? when somebody comes up to you out of the blue and says to you, I forgive you for being angry at you for so long. You know, it's like you use forgiveness as a method of attacking somebody. I forgive you for being angry at you for so long. Well, what is that? That's a very calculated violation of what we're going to hear about next week when we have a sermon on as we forgive the debts of others, as we forgive others their sins. This week, we learn to pray, forgive us our debts. And as you learn to pray to God, forgive me my debts, I'm telling you, you will not notice that others do it wrong. Love will cover their sins. You will be so filled with love and gratitude over what God has done for you that you'll hardly notice when others do it wrong. And they will do it wrong. I'm not minimizing the sins we commit against one another. Jürgen, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I was talking to Jürgen, and he was saying that in Germany when coronavirus came, everybody was saying this is going to lead to a new peace among our nation, a new, and the word he used was solidarity. We're all going to stand together and there's going to be togetherness and, and unity and peace. And then Jürgen laughs 
And Jurgen says, so the minute coronavirus and the quarantines come, he says, all of a sudden, everybody's on the phone calling the police because two people are walking on the street in front of their house. And they tell the police those two people aren't related to each other, you know? And then they're calling people about license plates. If they see a license plate that's not with their territory, you know, not their city's prefix. What's Bloomington's license plate prefix, Jimmy? 5-3, okay? If, if, if a license is in Bloomington, it doesn't begin with 5-3. They're on the phone with the police. I said to Jurgen, do the police actually bother with this? Oh, yes, he says, they have to. In Germany, they, the police respond, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm going to end with a poem, not a poem, but an excerpt from a poem by Walt Whitman. And then another poem by John Donne. Walt Whitman writes in his song of myself, he says this, he says, I think I could turn and live with animals. They are so placid and self-contained. I stand and look at them long and long. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. They, don't lie, they do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. And then John Donne, all of our favorite, a hymn to God the Father. John Donne lived a lot of his life sick and fearful of dying. And this is one of his many wonderful poems. He says, Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? Wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run, and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin, and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. But swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done. I fear no more. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our Father, we sin a lot, and because I'm a pastor, and have contact with as many in this church as anyone does. Many have been offended by me, and I pray, Lord, that you will help them to forgive me. And I pray, Lord, that you will make us as a church very aware of our sins against you. And we pray that not just as individuals and families and marriages, but as a church, there will be a growing humility and gratitude that pervades our family life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.